Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us understand what you've said to us in this passage of your word. And we pray, Father, that having heard it, we'll be obedient in all things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I love passports. Uh, here's my Australian passport, bona fide uh, representation that I'm a citizen. Uh, a passport tells other nations and other governments of your good standing with your own government, with your home government. It tells you about your citizenship. Uh, it tells the other government of the importance of looking you after your property properly and not allowing your rights uh, to be denied. And also lets you into places, a whole lot of other places where you've got relationships as well. Uh, I've got a POMI passport as well, uh, being a colonial, uh, and uh, as, as much as um, it hurt uh, when Johnny Wilkinson slotted that field goal to sink the Wallabies in the World Cup final, um, it, it's great because with this passport I get into a whole lot of EU nations, a whole lot of uh, European Union nations without a visa. But I reckon there are better passports to travel on uh, other than government passports. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard about the big family passport. That's a great passport to travel on if you've got one of them. I don't know whether you come from a big family or not, but if you've got a big family, it, it's a marvellous passport. Uh, my uh, mother's got six sisters, my father's got four sisters and a brother, and in the Chinese family, all their cousins are part of our family as well. Uh, and, and coming from a place like Hong Kong, they, that's been all over the place. So I can remember when I was in year 10 at school, travelling to uh, Canada, America, Costa Rica, uh, England, France, all on the back of, of relatives. Uh, and it's great. And I reckon if you've got a common name, right, like Smith, that's great because you can go for years travelling around certain parts of the world trying to convince everybody that, you know, the Smith that you're with is related to Smith that you're back home in Australia or something. Um, but I reckon one of the great passports is actually the Christian passport. Uh, that's one of the best passports that's really going around because it gets you, well, well, it gets you into home country that you can actually read about in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. But it's not just that it'll get you into the right place at the end. It's because you make friends and meet people everywhere and you're shown hospitality all over the world. I reckon it's even better than close relatives. I've been put up by so many people around the country, around the world, who just knew me as a Christian worker. And it's been fantastic. But I think it's a byproduct of being a Christian. See, if you try and become a Christian in order to get a Christian passport, it won't actually work. You'll fail. Well, Christian passports have a genuineness about them that Christians actually recognise. It's only as you share the gospel, as, you, as your partners in the ministry of the gospel, partners in the, in the task of proclaiming the gospel, that you'll actually really come to discover what friends you really have. Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. Uh, if you've never studied the book of the, uh, a book of the Bible before, it's a great place to start. It's only got four chapters, and they're short chapters, so you can read it in, in one small hit. It's not exactly a complicated book. It's an easy book to get to understand and to know. So it's a great place to, to, to be picking up. But even though it's short, there's no way that I'm going to cover all four chapters over the next three weeks. So I'm going to be choosing three, uh, three bits of the book to read. And hopefully by doing that, you actually get so excited about the book of Philippians, you actually want to read it for yourself. Today's talk picks up on our partnership in the first chapter of uh, Philippians. Uh, we're going to go through it verse by verse and fairly slowly. But we start off with the greetings in verses 1 and 2. Uh, now, like all of Paul's letters, they, they start off with a greeting. It's a fairly formalised greeting. Dear Philippians, yours truly, Paul, is, is probably how we would do it. But it's not quite the first century pattern of doing it. 
And you can imagine it, can't you? You know, you've got a scroll, and if you write do something, and then you sign who it's from right at the end, if you want to find out who it's from, each scroll you pick up, you've got to scroll, 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 scroll to the end to find out who it's coming from. So they don't do that. Uh, they go, Paul and Timothy, and then he, he tells them who he is, and then he tells who he's writing to, uh, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, and so it goes on. But while it might be a formal letter opening, he actually Christianizes this opening. So he starts by calling himself servants. Servants. Actually, he's a citizen. Uh, for those of you who know your Bible, you might actually remember the story in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He's fairly cheesed off that as a citizen of the Roman Empire, that he's actually locked up, that he's imprisoned, in jail, without trial. And you actually see the problem there in chapter 16 of Acts, uh, as they work it out, as they try to appease him and apologise to him for wrecking his life like that. It's the wrong person because he had the right passport. He was a Roman citizen. But when he approaches the Philippians, he doesn't say, Paul and Timothy, Roman citizens... And nor does he say here, uh, Paul and Timothy, apostles and leaders and founders of your church. He starts here with the word servants, which really is the word slaves or bondservants. That's how he's approaching them, as their slaves. And I think it's an important little reminder to us of our status. A Christian perception of status is very different to the world's perception of status. Because we're really slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice and glory in our low status. I, I want to say it because I, I think it's an antidote to what I think Philippians is also trying to be an antidote to, and that's about self-fulfillment and self-seeking, which is so current in our society and which unfortunately is so current in our church circles today. Uh, people come to church, people come to university groups for all sorts of reasons, uh, and, and, and one of them is to try to find self-fulfillment, trying to find themselves. And I think you can never really find yourself by looking for yourself. You can only lose yourself if you look for yourself. But I think if you actually lose yourself, you might have a chance of finding yourself. It's really all back to front in the way that people are thinking. And the fact that here, here, here is a great apostle who founded this church and he starts off by calling himself a slave, I, I think it's just a little index of, of, of the way that we ought to be thinking ourselves, uh, radically and dramatically different to the world. Uh, Andrew said I did medicine here back in the mid-80s. I actually work as a doctor once a week. Uh, and when I have a break from seeing patients, I actually have a look at the magazines that are lying around. Uh, and anyway, there, there was this uh, men's magazine back a couple of months ago. Not, not the Playboy kind of men's magazine, but men's health or something like that anyway. Um, I was looking through the articles, and really every one of those articles almost was about yourself, about self. Uh, and there was this one article that I flipped through called How Old Is Your Body? Well, I figured the best way of finding out uh, how old your body is actually having a look at your birth certificate. Uh, or you can have a chat to your mother, she was around at the time. Uh, I think it's fairly simple, finding out how old your body is. But that's not what they did, right? And, and what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to do all these different exercises to measure your body and its responses and to work out how old your body really is, not how old you think it is. Well, I was trying to work out how to do all these things in the middle of a waiting room, which is a little bit difficult, you know, doing a whole lot of press-ups and timing your pulse rates and all that sort of stuff. Um, but one of the things I came to was the whole thing of the hair stuff. Um, uh, now, uh, see, that, that's, that's a sign of ageing, right, the thing of hair. And, and what you had to do was you, you look carefully at where the hair was thinnest and you see whether there are any follicles. Um, and, and because the, the thing is your hair doesn't recede first, it actually thins first, and then you start seeing those uh, follicles. 
But one of the problems is that they actually didn't realise that most men whose hair was thinning like that, well, their eyes are failing them as well, and they actually... (laughs) (laughs) So what's it all about? It's about self. About me. All this massive concentration on finding, on discovering, developing, improving, fulfilling me. And Paul starts off, slaves. None of this pretense or interest in self, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of self. And then having talked about the lowliest of the lowly, the slaves, whom they actually had them back in those days, he writes to them as saints, the highest of the highest, to all the saints of Philippi, the holy, special, set-aside people of God. You know, one of the churches in Australia in their 200-year history they've been able to recognise one saint amongst them. It's taken them 200 years to do that. But those who know the Bible, those who know that all God's people are saints. There are many saints in Philippi, there are many saints in Australia. And you're not a saint because of some good work that you've done. You're not a saint because of founding an orphanage or, or running Sunday school or having done a miracle or having a religious rite or something like that. No but by the death and resurrection of Jesus taught in the Gospel, by the Spirit coming into life that leads you to believe in Him. You become a saint through Christ. But with characteristic twist, Paul then Christianizes the whole first century greeting to Jews and Gentiles by saying, grace and peace to you. That's God's grace. It's God's peace. Grace means generosity. It's about mercy, about forgiveness, about favour. And Paul expands on, on... on, on, and it says peace. And peace just doesn't mean, you know, a cessation of war, that there's no longer war or something like that. I still remember uh, driving up my nephew uh, up the central coast a few years ago. Uh, he was young at the time and, and he wouldn't stay in his seat, kept on taking his seatbelt off and, and stood up. And I said, Matthew, you need to sit down, you need to sit down. And, and sooner or later, you know, uh, his mother got really upset and said, Matthew, sit down, in a really, really cursed voice. And so he did. He sat down, buckled himself up, And he said to his mum, I hope you know I'm still standing on the inside. (laughs) Peace here actually means wholeness. It's a sense of well-being, of good relationships. Not just a cessation of war. And both of them can only ultimately be found in God. That's why it's grace and peace to you from God the Father. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only because both of them can only ultimately come from God our Father, both of them do come through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may you have the grace and peace that you find in the gospel. And still in fairly formalised letter-writing style of the first century, he starts off with a thanksgiving. It's his habit, really, in nearly all his epistles, as he starts with thanksgiving. And so it's not surprising here that he does it too. But I think his habit of thanksgiving is more than just a habit, and it's more than just formalised letter-writing. Because Paul teaches that that's what we should be doing. Thanksgiving is an important part. It's a habitual, a habitual part with prayer that, that we thank God and thank God for others. I wonder what you think of about other people in your church, in your congregation, in EU here. I wonder whether when you come to EU, whether you actually pray for the person beside you, whether you give thanks for them, or whether you just think of them as an impediment to afternoon tea. They're going to be the ones who nick the chocolate biscuits or something. <laughs> Have a look with me a few passages here. Now, for those of you who got your Bibles, it would be great to turn up to the next few pages. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, 
don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, verse 6. See, when you pray, whenever you pray, you should be praying with thanksgiving. That's the approach that we have to God in prayer. Thanksgiving should be a normal part of our prayer. And what's the opposite of thanksgiving? What's the opposite? Grumbling, discontent, complaining, whinging, sarcasm or cynicism or something like that. Turn back a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Philippians 2, 14. What does he say there? Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, as you shine like stars. We've got to be people of thanksgiving, not people of complaint or criticism, grumbling or discontent. We have everything to thank God for. And even when we come to pray to him with our requests and our anxieties, we should be praying with thanksgiving. But it's more than that. If you go to the Bible, turn back a page to Ephesians chapter 5. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about what the spirit-filled life looks like. What the life filled with the spirit actually looks like. In verse 20, when we're filled with the spirit, what happens when we're filled with the spirit? Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything, uh, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We always should be thankful. We should, be, we, we should always have that spirit of gratitude in our hearts to God and the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, or go to the other side of Philippians, Gentiles eat pork chops, the next side of, of Philippians, Colossians, where we read about the new life, about the resurrection life. What should we, we be doing if we, we live as a resurrected Christian? Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you're doing, gratitude towards God should be of the native air, the, the habitual characteristic, the, 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 the disposition of the Christian mind. It should be the norm. It says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 to 18. It says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. And there it's got a moral imperative in 2 Thessalonians. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's a moral implication. We ought always give thanks. When I meet someone who's a Christian, I ought to give thanks to God for them. Because it's by God's grace that they've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess I want to ask a question here. Are we complaining about each other? Are we complaining about the system? Are we grumbling about each other? Are we actually thinking as a first and a foremost thing? Thanking each other. Praising God for each other. Rejoicing in the knowledge that God is at work amongst us. The alternative is fairly stark but like that, isn't it? And no doubt it's different to Paul's attitude. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Look at the context, the reason of the thanksgiving. Uh, there are two interrelated reasons there. Uh, partnership is in verse 5, because you have partnership in the gospel, and confidence in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Confidence, surety. Let me develop the partnership one for a few moments, uh, because the, I think the idea of partnership uh, can be greatly confused. I actually like the ESV, although you've got the NIV there, uh, of the use of the word partnership. 
So it's actually the old-fashioned word fellowship. Uh, you know, you've got youth fellowships and Bible fellowships and all sorts of fellowships. But I think part of the problem is that I think the English meaning of the word fellowship has actually lost its connection with the, with the Bible, where it actually comes from. I think the old English word of fellowship is no longer governed by the Bible, but it's actually shifted. You know? So as well as working on staff here in my spare time, if there's any, um, I'm actually doing some postgraduate work uh, in, in medicine as well. And when I finish it, and when I do my exams, I'm actually going to get the fellowship of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. What does that mean? Uh, I looked at the Macquarie Dictionary last night, uh, which actually gives about seven different meanings of the word fellowship. And I think none of them actually gives what the Bible is talking about. So the word fellowship here has actually got the idea of partnership. It, it, it's more than two people having the same common interest or something. Uh, but it's about owning something in common. And not only just owning, owning it in common, but actually working at it, whatever it may be. So it's a working partnership. What's a partnership that's spoken of here? It's not that we're, we're just both Christians, which I think is a passive thing. It's more than that. We share in the proclamation of the gospel, I think, is what Paul is saying. Uh, look, look at it with, with, uh, with what Paul says. Uh, look at the partnership that the Philippians enjoy with Paul. You can see it there in verse 19 of chapter 1. What are they doing? They're praying for Paul. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. They pray for Paul in one line too. What else are they doing at the end of that chapter in verses 27 and 28? They contend for the gospel. They stand together in the gospel. They're evangelising with Paul. They're fighting for the gospel in the face of opposition. And so the second half of verse 27. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Their fellow workers with him in this. The thing he does is preach the gospel in the face of opposition. And they're doing preaching the gospel in the face of opposition. They're united with each other in the task. So all that will go down in the next couple of verses. They're partners in suffering, it goes on to say in verse 29 and 30. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They're a partnership of suffering. That's going through them. The suffer gospel. Well, in chapter 2, verse 25, you see that they actually sent Epaphroditus to take care of Paul in prison. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow workers and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. How they partners with Paul? They hear about Paul in prison, they hear that Paul's in need, and so they send someone along. Send one of their valued members so that Paul can be looked after. And in chapter 4, verse 10, they're caring for him. I rejoice, verse 10, chapter 4, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You, you, you were indeed concerned for me. Or down to verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered in partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They were partners to him right in the beginning. Partners in finances, in resources, in people. You prayed with me. You proclaimed the gospel with me. You suffered with me. You cared for me. You funded me. You shared with me in the troubles. They were partners in the gospel. And this is more than just friendliness here. This is a working partnership. An active partnership in the gospel. Let's look at the second basis of thanksgiving. Uh, that's confidence. We're confident in God about them. 
Notice he's not confident in them. He's confident in God about them. They've got active participation for And and if you were Paul and you hear about this active participation and you've experienced it, what do you want to do? You know, they've sent you some money, they've preached the gospel with you, they've worked side by side with you. Well, I want to write a letter saying thank you guys a lot. Thank you, Philippians, for doing that for us. But he doesn't say, I thank you because of what you've done, because of your partnership in the gospel. He says, I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel. And why is he thanking God for their partnership in the gospel? Well, it tells you there in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His confidence is in God for them. That God is at work within them. And that's why they are active participants in this gospel ministry. That's why they are his partners, because God has begun a good work in them. That's why they are his partners, because God has begun a work of salvation. He started it, he's carrying it through, and he's going to bring it into completion. They've responded in repenting of faith, and they're sharing in the work with him. Look across to Philippians chapter 2. You'll see the same thing in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, uh, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work, for his good pleasure. Why do they do the good things that God wants them to do? Because God is at work in changing them, transforming them so that they will want to do those good things, so that they are enabled to do those good things. And that's why he thanks God for their partnership. He has confidence in God. You'll see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 4, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 4, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. That right at the end there, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How will it happen? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. How will you know that you'll stand on the last day before the Lord Jesus Christ? Pure, blameless, spotless to the end. Because you're strong enough to make it to the end? No, wrong. Because God is at work within you, strengthening you, to enable you to stand firm on, on to the end. And so we pray to God for each other to stand firm at the end. And we want to thank God that he's able to do it. That he's at work in us. And so when we see fruits of godliness in the partnership of the gospel, when we see that happening in each other, we know that God is at work. He's begun a good work in them. He's carrying the work within them. And he's going to bring it to completion at the end. And I'm sure of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a great thing, isn't it? That we can trust in God and not ourselves. Uh, I need to admit here that uh, uh, when I do the Myers Briggs thing, I'm actually a really strong F. I'm a feeling type guy. Uh, my wife gets sick of me uh, crying in front of movies. I think we, we, uh, we, we got to bend it like Beckham the other day, and I think that's a pretty bland mood, right? I cry. <laughs> But one of the things I love about um, Paul's writing, and Philippians in particular, is, is the depth of emotion and the depth of uh, love that Paul has. H- have a look at verse 7 and 8 there. It's right for me to feel this way about you, or think uh, uh, this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you 
all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, people want to accuse Paul of being cold, hard and intellectual. That's what the Paul we read in the Bible. Paul's a warm man, a man who's overflowing with love and affection and gentleness. But I want you to notice here the character of it. And here's the if you search and chase after these affections, this pleasure and love and joy and all these things, I don't think you'll find them. And I think that's, that's the thing that the world doesn't understand. It's astonishing, really, because writers throughout the age, both in and outside of Christianity, have said it, you chase the pleasure, you'll never find it. You chase love, you'll never find it. You chase joy, you'll never find it. It's here, being partakers together, that leads to this great affection and deep, deep joy and love. If you seek to give other people pleasure and love and joy, you'll find them all. You'll find friendship as well if you forget yourself and work in partnership in the gospel. You'll discover pleasure and love and joy and friendship and partnership. Uh, people come to the EU for all sorts of reasons. Uh, some people come because they want to find friends, and I hope they do. I hope you do. Uh, but you may or you may not. But I want to assure you that if you want to work for the gospel and its proclamation, Giving your time, your energy, your money, your resources, your life to it, suffering for it in the face of opposition. There comes with it difficulties and rejections that are all around. I want to tell you, you will find friends. You'll find partners. The friendship of partnership. You'll find the friendship of being a comrade in arms. One of the things I'm amazed at all the time each year is Anzac Day, uh, 25th of April each year. And, and you see lots of the old diggers getting together. And they haven't seen each other since last time that day. But for a few years, for a few months, back in those days, you know, they shared together the struggle of warfare with each other, the men and women who've, who've done that. There comes a bond which, which those who, who sit in self-discovery groups, I think, never discover. It's from their hard work together. It's from their struggling together. It's from their partnership together that they have this great love for one another. Isn't it extraordinary? If you've ever been to a thing like the National Training Event or a beach mission, 10 days, total strangers. And yet at the end of it, real friends. What makes them real friends? I think it's work that they've done together. True affection and friendship, that's a byproduct of partnership in the task that you're engaged in. And these people, you Philippines, you sharing God's grace with me. And because in verse 7 they're sharing and believing with him and suffering with him, uh, whether he was in chains or, or, or whether they sent Epaphroditus or money or, or defence of the gospel, whatever it is, they're partners. They delight in the confirmation and the sharing of the gospel. They're partners with him in God's grace. And so Paul, because of his great affection for them as partners, he prays for them. He prays for his partners that he loves and longs for. A prayer which gives him great joy that you'll see in verse 4. I wonder what you pray for, for your partners, for your Christian friends, for ourselves for that matter. Well, verses 9 to 11 actually spell it out, doesn't it? They tell us in a series of clauses that build on each other and that, until it actually reaches the great climax. Firstly, that their love may abound and overflow and grow, keep on growing, bubbling over, spilling over the top. Keep on bubbling out. But it's not just bubbling out everywhere or spilling out everywhere. There's a certain direction. There's one particular direction. And that's in knowledge, that your love may grow and abound in knowledge. I think we've got a tendency to put knowledge and love apart from each other, don't we? In 1 Corinthians 8, 11, it takes it apart, but actually puts it back together. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. 
takes it apart, but actually puts it together. The love and knowledge actually go hand in hand. In fact, the Bible always does that. It encourages us in knowledge. Uh, if you're a person that knows your letters of Paul in the New Testament, uh, you actually remember some of the, the, the prayers of Paul. Prayers often reflect what's the most important things in people's minds. And what's the one thing that Paul always, always seems to pray for? It's for their knowledge. Their growth in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. He hates ignorance in Christians, I think. He wants us to know. Knowledge is important. Knowledge, not for its own sake, of course. Not knowledge that, that puffs up. Not knowledge that's proud. Like, you know, you can mem- remember the most memory verses like stupid like that. Knowledge so that you can discern what's the best. That's what he wants. Practical knowledge. Knowledge of values, the knowledge between what's worthless and what's valuable, between what's right and wrong, between what's wise and foolish. Discern what's good. Not only what's good, not only what's right, but what's the best. Why? So that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. You see, from your love you must have it grow in knowledge. You see, you can love and not know. And when you love and not know, it's terribly dangerous. It's horrible. Ignorant love is the most dangerous thing. You see, some people love me enough to, to get me a drink after our public meetings. They, they see Michael up here talking for 35 minutes straight and he hasn't had a glass of water or anything like that. He needs a drink and I'm talking to people after, after the tea. So they get me a coffee. But if you actually know me, I hate coffee. I love hanging around people who drink coffee. But you know, if I drink coffee, I'll be still staring at the ceiling at 3 o'clock in the morning. But you know, because I love you and I don't want to embarrass you, I'll drink it. And I'll be staring at the ceiling at 3 o'clock in the morning. But there's love without knowledge, isn't there? Uh, you, you think, okay, I want to be loving, but love in ignorance sometimes just doesn't work. See, if you know them, you'll actually know how to serve. What will actually please the Lord. But when you're dealing with the Lord, it's not just about you know, his quashout for different drinks or something like that. It's not something trivial. It's about discerning what's best so that you can put the best into operation in your life. And then you'll be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that really comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because chapter 2, verse 13, it's God who's at work in you to will and do that which is right. His perfect will. His good purposes comes from Him. It comes from Jesus Christ. And that's why you give glory to God through Jesus Christ at the end of verse 11. For when we are filled with righteousness on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, pure and spotless and blameless, it's because God and His work is at work in you and through us. And that's why we give thanks to God. Well, there's Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It really is just an extended Bible reading, isn't it? Going through verse by verse. But I hope you get it. I hope you get it. That the greetings actually say something. That the thanksgiving actually say something. And you can read from other bits of Paul's writing and what it means. And the deep partnership that comes. Not just from being the same thing or something like that, but an active partnership that actually works together. Because just in the last couple of minutes or so, I want to ask you a few questions. I want to ask you a few questions back. Firstly, are you a saint? Are you a saint? That is, do you know the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy that comes from God? Have you got peace with God? With God's people through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that grace and the peace that he's talking about in verse 2? That he wants for the Christian saints in Philippi? 
has God actually begun that good work in you in verse 6? Bringing you to salvation. Bringing you to the gospel. Do you share the grace of God that commits you to this gospel and this ministry? Do you know it like that? Are you a saint? Well, if you're not sure whether you're a saint or not, why don't you come and talk to me afterwards? I'll be at afternoon tea, having a cup of water, hopefully. But do come and speak to me. Talk to me about it. Because I don't think there's any point waiting for some Polish guy to tell you 50 years after you died that you're a saint or something like that. That's not how you become a saint. It's through the Lord Jesus' death on your behalf and the work of God's Spirit in your heart now. That's what being a saint is about. And you, you can know whether you're a saint today. But friends, if you know that you're a saint, I've got another question for you. Are you a partner? Are you a partner in this great gospel? Or are you just sitting there watching as the world goes around? And more pointedly, are you a partner with us in the evangelical union? Are you yet one of those who are in partnership with us proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be giving like the Philippines were giving? That partnership. It's not the amount that counts. It's the heart that matters, isn't it? Our aim here is to defend and confirm the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your aim? In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be talking about membership here in the Evangelical Union. Have a look at our objects and see whether you want to be part of that partnership, working together to, to let all the non-Christians here know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That as you proclaim that Lordship, that you want to see people come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That you want to see that Lordship of Jesus Christ go to the end of the world. Is that your aim? And more practically, are you willing to be a partner here in public meetings? We need help. Workers who can actually help this gospel being proclaimed week in, week out. We need posters, we need people to set up, pack up, fold. Are you a partner? Or are we just watching the partnership go by? Well, if you're one of our partners, then the last point I want to bring is with love and affection you will find our prayers and thanksgiving to God as you will find you will be giving thanks to God for us, for all of us, as we share in this work together. And we need to be praying for each other, praying that we'll grow in love and our love will grow in knowledge so that we'll learn what it's the best and we'll be pure and blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with righteousness. That's what we do in prayer meetings every week. Pray for each other, pray for God's work, that partnership together in prayer. See, I think that's why Christians are the best passport in the world. Because partners in the gospel love each other like this. And they recognise each other like this. And they pray for each other like this. With thankfulness in our hearts for each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that you will fill us with all knowledge and depth of insight. That, um, that our love will be knowledgeable and that in knowing that we'll be able to discern what is best. And so, dear Lord, we'll be pure and blameless on that last day, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Father, we thank you so much that you, who are the God who began a good work in us, will carry it on to completion in Christ. And we pray this for his sake. Amen.